All right, welcome back to Baseball Banter. I'm your host, Justin Gianelli. Today, we are going to take a look at a few different things. Obviously, we are a week into the lockout between the owners and the players. And obviously, there has been, you know, remotely zero movement uh, to date. And, you know, we, we still have time on our side. You know, we still have a couple of months until pitchers and catchers are to report uh, to the spring training sites, and to be honest, right now I'm not a hundred percent. I'm not really concerned. I I do think when we get into the middle of January, I think the sides are going to try to push towards a deal. You know, we know the players don't want to lose games, and the owners don't want to lose games because they don't want to lose out on the money that can be made with revenue on concessions, ticket sales. All that you know, we already had a big loss from the from the COVID pandemic from the COVID pandemic, and you know not having fans during the twenty twenty season, and plus you had a normal eighty one game home schedule trimmed down to thirty because it was only a sixty game season last year. So there's a lot at stake. Um, We'll see what they try to do on the field, what they try to do for salary structure, uh, and all of that. And it's going to be interesting which side blinks first. Because right now, it, it, from what we saw last week in Dallas, there really isn't much movement between the two sides right now. And they're standing firm with what they believe in. And you know the players stand firm and you know, what they think is fair. The owners are concerned about competitive balance, you know, because every year you go in and you you know that there's three there's five six teams that have le- legitimately zero shot. Like the Marlins have no chance to win the World Series. The Orioles, the Pirates, um, these teams have no chance to win the World Series. So. It's really going to come down to the owners and players finding a middle ground and how long it's going to take these two sides to stop bantering about, you know, service time, uh, revenue share. Because, re- you know, it's all about the money. You know, when you've got millionaires and billionaires fighting, you know, it's, you know, something that no regular everyday person has sympathy for, but it's also something that's important for the sport to make sure this game's going in the right direction going forward. Because there's a lot of issues with the game of baseball, and it's not attracting the younger fan base because the game is very slow, um, there's not enough action. Um, it's concerning, and... You're looking at baseball becoming a dying breed, and baseball is a beautiful sport. And I love the fact that it doesn't have a game clock. It's the only one of the four professional sports that doesn't have a game clock. And But what I like about it is the fact that it takes 27 outs to put a team away. However, nobody likes sitting through a four-hour game. Now, for me... If it's a four-hour game and I'm at the game and I'm in the stands, good. I spent my money to go to the game. I might as well be there as long as possible. That's part of my day plan. But nobody want in their right mind wants to sit at home and watch a four-hour game on television. And the national marketing for superstars is about as bad as it gets. It's almost worse than hockey. And that's hard to do because... Hockey's a very regional sport, but you look at the NBA, you look at the NFL, and how national it is, and we know all the stars. You know, we see Tom Brady, we see Aaron Rodgers, we see Patrick Mahomes everywhere. You know, we you know we see LeBron James, we see, you know, other NBA stars like Kevin Durant and Anthony Davis. We see these guys everywhere. The NBA and NFL are so marketable nationwide. And those are sports where you, you could be a fan of anybody. I mean, you, 
you know, you live in New Jersey. You, I, I lived in New Jersey growing up, and you know, live in New York now. But you know, growing up, you you knew you knew Cowboys fans, you knew Raiders fans, you knew Steelers fans, and none of those teams play in New York or New Jersey. You know, we have the Jets and Giants out here. Same thing for the NBA. You know, Bulls fans. You know, Lakers fans. I mean, obviously the Knicks and Nets are in the tri-state area, but those those franchises are nationally marketable. There's not a Major League Baseball franchise aside from the New York Yankees. I guess you could argue the L.A. Dodgers a little bit that are nationally marketable, but you don't see a whole flock of Dodger fans here in New York. You see, you still you do see some because of the history, and the Dodgers originally being from Brooklyn. Some of the older generation stayed Dodger fans, so they passed it down to their kids, and they became LA Dodger fans. Um, but for the most part, you know, you don't see a flock of Cub fans in New Jersey. You don't see a flock of uh, Astros. Well, Astros is a bad example. Everybody hates the Astros unless you're an Astros fan. You don't see a flock of Rangers fans. You don't see a flock of Cardinal fans outside of their home city. So the you know the the national the national marketing of these players is something that needs to be fixed. It's something that Commissioner Rob Manfred needs to work on. And you know I don't trust him to do it because he's the worst commissioner in all of sports, but. I think that's one of its biggest problem. It's regional, and nobody, and and the game is just so slow that when you're at home, you don't want to sit through the whole game. You're not going to want to sit through four hours of watching ten different pitching changes in in like a three inning span. So, you know, there are ways to make the game better, but some of the rules that have been implemented uh, have just been horrendous and I know some of them aren't lasting past this past season like the extra inning rule runner on second I think that's gonna go away um the uh, I'm trying to think what other rule that they did not that they didn't like the three batter minimum is gonna stay um the runner on second probably won't um but you know the major league baseball just has a lot of issues and it's not going to it's not going to be all fixed in one off season but they are going to have to come to some kind of agreement so that the the players and owners can agree to a new CBA and you know we could get back on the field so i mean that's kind of where we're at with base where with with the league itself and you know we're, unless we have an update you know we're not going to be talking much more about the current happenings in Major League Baseball because there's really nothing happening. The only thing that's going on right now is teams are allowed to hire managers if they have a vacancy. And currently, we have two vacancies in Major League Baseball. Um, there was three openings at the end of 2020. Jace Tingler was fired as the man- manager of the San Diego Padres. Mike Schilt was let go as the manager of the Cardinals. And Luis Rojas was let go as manager of the New York Mets. The Cardinals decided to hire within, and they hired Oliver Marmol, who I believe was serving as bench coach uh, recently for for Mike Schilt. The San Diego Padres decided to hire Bob Melvin, which now creates an opening for the Oakland Athletics because the A's allowed Melvin to interview for the Padre job, and he and he accepted, and you know went offered by the Padres. So Bob Melvin's the new manager in San Diego. And from what I know, there are two names that are being uh inter- that are being interviewed by both the Mets and the A's, and that's Matt Quattraro, who currently serves as the bench coach for the Tampa Bay Rays under Kevin Cash, and you have Joe Espada, who served under Joe Girardi as a third base coach bench coach uh more recently was with the is with the Astros under Dusty Baker and was in the World Series this past year so 
those are the only two names that I have heard that are interviewing for both the Mets and the A's job. You know, we'll see where the A's job takes them. I, I think they're going to go with a younger manager. And the Mets I'm going to save for a little later because I want to go in-depth on the Mets. But, you know, just looking at the A's real quick, you know, they're kind of breaking down their team. There's been a lot of talks about trading Matt Chapman. There's been a lot of talks about uh, trading Matt Olson, uh, Sean Manaya. So there's clearly thinking of breaking it down. You watch two Oakland A's leave already in free agency, Starling Marte and um, Mark Canna, both going to the Mets. And it's going to be a transition period for the A's. You know, they lose their manager. Their financial situation is horrendous. They, they've been fighting with the city of Oakland about a new stadium for the longest time and really have not gotten any closer to a resolution. So, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of question marks surrounding the Oakland A's franchise and, and more, most importantly, whether or not they're going to stay in the city of Oakland. I mean, that's like their number one concern at this point. So they're going to break it down. Nobody goes to the games. But on the, on the other hand, for the Mets, this is a win-now opportunity for the Mets. I mean, you look at what they spent in the offseason. You spend $77 million to bring in Starling Marte. You get, you get Mark Hanna and Eduardo Escobar both on two-year deals. Um, I believe it was two for 20 for Escobar and like two for $27.5 million for Mark Hanna. And then obviously the, the big ticket item so far was Max Scherzer. The three years, one hundred and thirty million dollar contract, and clearly the Mets are not done. They they were rumored to be in the Chris Bryant sweepstakes prior to the lockout. Obviously, um, Bryant has not signed, and so he will wait out the lockout. I know this one's unlikely, but Carlos Correa is still out there. There's still some names that are going to be out there, and we'll see what the market looks like once the lockout's over. And we'll we'll certainly detail that once we get closer to a resolution and the markets heat back up for these players. But before I get into the Mets managerial search, I want to talk about the Hall of Fame. And last week on Sunday, actually, there were six new members added to the Hall of Fame. Now, this is not the Baseball Writers uh, – this is not the Baseball Writers Association – they are. They will be voting, I believe, sometime in the middle or late January for the 2022 Hall of Fame class. This is the Golden Era Committee, a more, more famously known as the Veterans Committee. Um, they inducted six new members to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And we have former... Twin Jim Cott played for a few other organizations as well. Former White Sox Minnie Minoso. Former Twin Tony Oliva. Former Brooklyn Dodger legend Gil Hodges. And it's been a long time coming for Gil Hodges. And, you know, also we have Bud Fowler and Buck O'Neill as well. Buck O'Neill was a major figure. With the Kansas City Monarchs and the Negro Leagues back in the early back in the early, uh, you know, fifties and and whatnot, but I, you know, I do want to spend a little bit of time on everybody, but I do want to talk about Gil Hodges, and it, it has been long overdue for Gil. He had an eighteen-year career in the big leagues that spanned uh, sixteen years playing for the Brooklyn slash Los Angeles Dodgers. His final four seasons with the Dodgers were in LA. You know, he won as a player, he won two World Series in 55 and 59. He was ma- named to a number of All-Star teams. He was named to eight All-Star teams. He won three gold gloves. He finished his career playing for the expansion New York Mets in 62 and 63. And then later on, became the manager after Casey Stengel retired and led the Mets to the 1969 
World Championship known as the Miracle Mets with Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Jerry Grody, Cleon Jones. I mean, I can name you most of the roster, but you get the point. And he probably would have managed a lot longer um, had he not suffered a heart attack and unfortunately passed away uh, at the young age of 47 years old, just right before the 1972 season. And, you know, he definitely had a lot more to give, you know, as a major league, as a major league manager. And it's past due that he became a Hall of Famer. Obviously, his number 14 is retired, you know, at, at City Field. You know, and was you know was hanging up in the outfield at Shea Stadium back in the day, and he meant a lot to the Met franchise, and he meant a lot to the Dodger franchise too. I mean, if you look at his numbers, I mean, seven straight years where he had one hundred or more RBIs. You know, we had from nineteen forty nine to nineteen fifty nine, an eleven year span where he hit no less than 22 home runs. You know, he ended up with a career 370 home runs. And, and, and for my money, he could have had more because he lost the, 19, he lost the 1944 he lost, and the 1945 season uh, due to military service. You know, and obviously that was a prevalent time with uh, World War II. Obviously yesterday was the 80-year anniversary of Pearl, the, the attacks on Pearl Harbor. And that's when the USA joined the war, joined the world war. And, you know, a lot of these baseball players, Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Gil Hodges, these, uh, I believe Yogi Berra as well. These guys lost valuable time in their young career. You know, Gil Hodges lost his age 20, 21, and 22 season. Because of, you know, because because of the uh, because of the war, you know, he he debuted. And he only had a couple of bats. He only had a couple of bats. He only played a one game in nineteen forty three, but he didn't start playing full time until nineteen forty eight. He played twenty eight games in nineteen forty seven, and then started playing full time at the age of twenty four. I mean, what? What could have what what could his numbers have been, had he not lost service time, and you know it's not like these players were losing time, when they're thirty five years old, they were young, they were, in the best years of their career, and it's it's definitely a what could have been, but for Gil Hodges, I mean, a career two seventy three hitter, I mean I don't. I don't truly look at batting average too much, but a two seventy three mark ain't ain't too bad. Over a thousand RBIs, he had one thousand two hundred seventy four RBIs, a career OPS of eight forty six. I mean, I mean he had one, two, three. He had three seasons of over nine hundred. You know, three or four seasons over eight seventy five. You know, he was just. He he retired with the most home runs of any right-handed hitter in 1963. Now, obviously, you know that number got pushed down and down as the generations have has gone on. But I mean, to, you can't deny the greatness of Gil Hodges, and I think it was long past due that Gil gets his day in Cooperstown, and I'm I'm happy for his I'm happy for his family. His wife is, I believe, 98 years. 98 years old, still living, um, you know, she will be able to, you know, watch her husband be inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, his son, Gil Hodges Jr., um, will have, will have the excitement of watching his father become a Hall of Famer, and the the joy and the relief of the Hodges family, I mean, Obviously, he passed away very young, and you know probably would have never gotten to the Hall of Fame. You know at that you know at that stage, but the fact that he's been gone almost fifty years, and it took this long to put him in. This was his thirty fifth try on the Veterans slash Golden Era Committee, and he finally he finally got in. 
So I want to now move on a little bit with uh, Jim Cott. Jim Cott was a career 283 and 237. Pitched in almost 900 games, 898 to be exact. Started 625, even posted 17 saves. A career 3.45 ERA. Uh, guy who had a great career. I mean, he's, he's a guy who he took the ball every fifth day. You know, one of the greatest defensive pitchers of all time. A 16-time gold glover. A 1982 world champion with the, um, with the St. Louis Cardinals. Teammate of Keith Hernandez, by the way. Three-time All-Star. Uh, you know, I mean, this is a guy who had a very, very long, successful career. You know, and has given so much to the game. Because, you know, post-career... You know, post he, he spent a lot of time as a broadcaster, was with the New York Yankees for a while, and even is still to this day at 83 years old, you know, doing some work for MLB Network. I mean, the contributions that Jim Cott has had to this game is uh, very much, very much Hall of Fame worthy, and, you know, very happy to see him get into the Hall of Fame. Minnie Minoso, another, uh, another guy who who is inducted to the Hall of Fame, spent some time in the Negro Leagues, um, eventually got to the American League in 1949 with the Cleveland Indians, um, and then played the bulk of his career with the Chicago White Sox, where with the White Sox in 12 years, posted a career 304 average um, with 808 RBIs, over 1,000 RBIs for his career. I mean, the contribu- again, the contributions you know for him to the game three-time gold glove winner, the 1947 world champion um, in the Negro Leagues, a 13-time All-Star. I mean, a, a guy who really was one of the first, Really, he was really one of the first from Cuba to be in the big leagues, and it, it really impacted, you know, players coming over from from there. So, congratulations to, them, to him. Tony Oliva as well. Again, spent his career with the, most of his career with the Minnesota Twins, which spanned from 62 to 76. Um, again, an, another one of the players from, one of the early players from Cuba. He won Rookie of the Year in 1964. He is an eight-time All-Star, won three batting titles, Won a gold glove in 1966. Um, you know, played in the 65 World Series against the uh, against the LA Dodgers. Unfortunately, the Dodgers won that for you know for his sake. But you know, it, Major League Baseball recognizing and recognizing their past, and this is. This is this is a great moment for old time players who really should have gotten their due years ago, and they're going to be finally. And, and I believe if I'm Tony well, Tony Oliva and Jim Cott are still living, so they will be able to formally, you know, knock on whether they're still with us come July. Um, you know, they're they're going to have their day in Cooperstown. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be really awesome. That's for sure. So congratulations to them. My my one final comment on the the Golden Era Committee is I, I wonder, you know, I know it's a different group of voters as opposed to the baseball writers, but I wonder if they're concerned that there's really not going to be um too many players voted into the Hall of Fame this year because the ballot actually looks a little bit... The the 2022 Baseball Writers ballot, it's a weak one. And I really don't know how many are going to be going to the Hall of Fame. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, who gets close, who, you know, who's going to make it in and you know are the you know are the close ones going to make it over the top i i don't know i mean 
we've seen over the last couple of years Kurt Schilling um, lose a couple of votes here and there. But now Kurt's in his final year. The top three vote-getters from last year are all in their 10th year now. That's Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. So then there's 17 players on the ballot who are returnees from last year. Um, Notably, Scott Rowling got 52.9%. Billy Wagner, 46.4%. Jeff Kent always gets a low number, but... You know, I feel like his numbers are better than what the writers give credit for. Now, don't get me wrong; he was a complete. No, don't get me wrong; he was a complete d bag to the media. The me, you know, the media didn't like him. The media didn't like Barry Bonds, but this guy was a four, a five time All Star. He won the MVP in two thousand. I mean, he's one of the great power hitting second basemen of all time. 377 home runs, 1,500 RBIs, you know, played 17 years in the big leagues with the, with the Blue Jays, Mets, Indians, Giants, Astros, and Dodgers. And certainly it should be up for consideration for the Hall of Fame. Now, again, he was in the 30s. He was at 32.4%, and now he's in his ninth year. I don't know that he's got 43% in him over the next two years. Remember, you have to reach the 75% threshold in order to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And again, the high the high vote getter last year was Kurt Schilling. He got 71.1%, so he fell short by about, by, by about 4%. And he's heading into the final year. Now... I had never viewed Kurt Schilling as a Hall of Famer. I thought he was a terrific pitcher in his day. Uh, you know, what he did with the 01 Diamondbacks, the 2004 Red Sox, the Bloody Sox game. You know, he won an NLCS MVP um, with the Philadelphia Phillies. Or, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, that was with the, uh, that was with the D-backs. But, um, but he, you, know, he, you know, he got to the World Series with the Phillies in the 90s. You know, he won the World Series three times, twice with the Red Sox, once with the 0-1 Diamondbacks, six-time All-Star. I mean, Kurt Schilling was a terrific pitcher. But, you know, when I look at his career numbers, 3.46 ERA, little bit high. He did strike out over 3,000 hitters, 3,116 to be be exact. Um, 216 wins, 146 losses, so I like the win-loss ratio. But again, you know, I don't look at it that much. Kurt Schilling never won a Cy Young Award. And I think for me as a pitcher, that is, for a pitcher, that is uh, pertinent to be on the criteria. I really think that you need to be a Cy Young winner. You need to rack up a couple awards. You know, I like to see bold face, bold, bold type on your baseball reference page. And twice he did lead the league. He did lead the majors in wins. He led the the lead the league led the league in two thousand one twenty two and six, and two thousand four twenty one and six, and finished runner up three times for the Cy Young. However, you know I I do believe that winning a Cy Young or two really beefs up the resume, and I think that's the one thing that's missing. From Kurt Schilling's resume. Now, there are a bunch of new, there are a bunch of new, um, new members on the ballot this year. Now, a ton of them are going to just completely get knocked off. Like all these guys, like these guys in the first year, like AJ Pierzynski and Jonathan Papelbon and Tim Lincecum and you know Jake PV. Those guys are not even going to get the 5%. I mean, I mean, what are we doing here? But again, you meet the criteria when you, 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 you accrue a certain amount of like war, I believe it is. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure exactly what it is aside from being in the league 10 years. 
you, you have to be in the league for at least a decade, and then you there are certain other criterias that I'm not 100% uh, certain on. But looking at the newcomers, you know, you know with the whole Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens thing, and that's the whole can of worms that we have to go over year after year. What do you do with the steroid guys? Because you have Alex Rodriguez, another known steroid guy, and David Ortiz, who was in the Mitchell Report, but I don't believe he ever failed the test. You know, once they began, t- once they began, you know, cracking down. And you know, when you look at David Ortiz, I mean, he's it's never talked about with him. It's really never a topic of conversation. And you know, he's he's a guy with five hundred and forty-one home runs. He drove in. 1,768 RB, you know, 1,768 runs. I mean, I don't know that David Ortiz gets in on the first ballot, but I do believe it's possible. And then these other guys, you know, Justin Morneau, not going to get in. I, I think Morneau might stay on the ballot for a couple of years. Prince Fielder is going to be an interesting case because his career got cut short due to the neck issue. Uh, I don't know how his numbers are going to stack up in the eyes of a Hall of Fame voter. Um, but, you know, guys like Jimmy Rollins, Mark Teixeira, um, they, they they all had really good careers. But, you know, to you know, they don't – nobody screams Hall of Fame. David Ortiz does, does in my opinion. And, you know, I'm going to reveal now who I, who I believe – I would vote for if I'm given a ballot as a, as a baseball writer. So I would vote for David Ortiz. He's the only first-timer that I'd vote for. And I wouldn't vote for Alex Rodriguez because I think, you know, because I think he's a complete D-bag. Let's let's put it let's put it clear. I mean, from the the lying to Katie Couric to going on Mike Francesa's show to vehemently deny any use of steroids. And then you get suspended, you know, get suspended a whole year. I mean, there's just so much baggage surrounding Alex Rodriguez. Same with guys like Manny Ramirez and Sammy Sosa. These guys got busted and and disciplined for it. Well, not so much Sammy Sosa, but Manny Ramirez got suspended for PEDs. Um, Sosa was more suspected, and then he didn't make him. He didn't look good when he was on Capitol Hill testifying with Mark McGuire, Rafael Palmero, and th- those guys were all disgraced. And the the question is going to really be. How how many guys are currently in the Hall of Fame that have used steroids? We don't know the answer, but the belief is that there certainly is a few. Pudge Rodriguez, to name one example, you know it's it's going to be it's it's a slippery slope that these writers have had to deal with year after year, and now you're in year ten of Barry Bonds. And Roger Clemens. And for me, I pers- I have a personal vendetta against Roger Clemens. The whole Mike Piazza thing back in 2000. I think that, you know, will always make me believe I don't want to see Roger Clemens in the Hall of Fame. But Barry Bonds, steroid or no steroid, for my, for my money, the greatest player I've ever seen. I mean, the guy was just so scary. And yes, where there's some performance-enhancing drugs that kind of aided him, I do believe so. But I do believe that had he not used steroids, this dude is an easy first ballot Hall of Famer. This dude would have had a statue outside of AT&T Oracle Park, whatever the name is in San Francisco. You know... I still believe he would be one of the great players of all time. And I personally would I personally would like to see Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame. So so far David Ortiz and Barry Bonds. 
The other one I'd vote for, and he's now in his seventh year uh, of eligibility, that's Billy Wagner. I, I think Billy Wagner gets lost in the shuffle a little bit because, you know, we had in the last couple of years Trevor Hoffman going to the Hall of Fame, Mariano Rivera going to the Hall of Fame, and, and those are some great relievers, and Mariano Rivera is the greatest reliever of all time. There's no question about that, but Billy Wagner's career was fantastic. He compiled a 2.31 ERA, struck out 1,196 in 903 innings, compiled 422 saves, played 16 years in the big leagues. I mean, this guy was a dominant closer, a seven-time All-Star. He won the Roll Age Relief Award. You know, I think that Billy Wagner has gotten the short end of the stick here. I really do. And, you know, we haven't seen him pitch in 11 years. His last game was in 2010. And, and could argue he's one of the could argue he's one of the best left-handed relievers of all time. He really could. And to me, I just don't understand why Billy Wagner has been disrespected like this. He only, again, he only got 46.4% of the vote in his seventh try. Unfortunately, I don't know. He's got, you know, this is the seventh year, so he, so he's had six and he's got four more left. I don't know if there's 29% that he can make up. There might be because, you know, year after year, the, you know, guys go in. So the ballot looks a little thinner, and it could sway a, a writer's opinion and say, well, we really do believe Billy Wagner's a Hall of Famer. And I'm interested to see what his climb is this year. Can, for me, if he's going to get into the Hall of Fame, he's got to get to the mid-50s this year. you got to get to at least 55%. Try to cl- get close to 60 but... Really get to 55%. Because uh, I would love to see uh, Billy Wagner go to the Hall of Fame. I really would. So I would go with a three-person ballot. Um, I am not Team Scott Rowland. I think he was a very good player, a great defensive third baseman. But the numbers just quite aren't enough for me to say this guy's a Hall of Famer. Uh, Omar Vizquel, one of the great defensive shortstop of all time. He's got, I think, almost as many, if not maybe more gold gloves than Ozzie Smith does. The problem is there's, you know, there's off-the-field issues that has even had him taken out of the Indians now, Cleveland Guardians uh, Hall of Fame or Ring of Honor, whatever they have it at Progressive Stadium. But, so I'm not on Team Vizquel. Todd Helton's an interesting case. You know, he got he's in his fourth year. He's a and he's at forty four point nine percent in his fourth. You know, going into his fourth year, so I do think there's momentum towards Todd Helton going to the Hall of Fame. He played his whole career at Coors Field. He, you know, he hit over three hundred home runs. Uh, three sixty nine to be exact. Had one thousand four hundred and. One RB, you know, fourteen hundred one RBIs, a career three sixteen hitter, a nine fifty three OPS. I mean, the numbers are there. I'm not the biggest fan of Todd Helton, so I, I'm not really feeling it with him going to the Hall of Fame. The Andrew Jones love, I think, is getting a little too ridiculous. He got thirty three point nine percent, and he goes into his fifth year of eligibility. Here's a guy who was a terrific defensive center fielder for the Atlanta Braves, but also a guy who, at 30 years old, fell off the face of the earth and, you know, couldn't hit better than 230 in his final five seasons of the big leagues. I mean, I'm sorry. I can't take a guy who hit 158 and 197 two of his final five years in the big leagues. I mean, it's just, just not acceptable. I mean... I, the numbers just went from productive. I mean, Jones is a 
10-time gold glover, so you can't argue how great he was defensively. A five-time all-star. He won a silver slugger award. But I think there's too much of a drastic drop-off with Andrew Jones to really put him in consideration for the Baseball Hall of Fame. I don't... For for me, it's just not... It's not working. So, there's not really anybody else on the list. So, again, to recap, I'd, I'd go with a three-man ballot. I'd go with uh, Barry Bonds, Billy Wagner, and, yes, I'd go with David Ortiz. So, that is... So that's so that's my thought on the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, you know, again, we'll see in about a month or so. Uh, I would imagine they'd still hold the, you know, you know, election in January despite the MLB lockout. I don't know that – I don't think that's got anything to do, you know, and affect it one way or the other. All right. So on another topic I'd like to talk about more in depth. You know, we did briefly mention – the managerial openings and the New York Mets managerial opening specifically, but I want to go in depth on it now. And you know, we've we've seen some names, we've we've heard some guys have interviewed. Um, right now, there's uh, six candidates for the job, although it is believed that Don Kelly, who is the Pirates bench coach, has withdrawn his name from conversation. And whew, I think we dodged a bullet. I'm sorry. No disrespect to Don Kelly. I'm sure he's a terrific baseball guy. I'm sure he knows baseball inside and out. I don't want somebody from the Pittsburgh Pirates coaching staff. I mean, Pittsburgh Pirates is just known for losing. Uh, No thank you. So here's what we know in regards to the Mets managerial search. It is believed that Matt Quartaro, who is the Rays bench coach, has interviewed. He is or is scheduled to interview with the Oakland A's if he hasn't already. Um, Joe Espada, I believe, is set to interview tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. Today, Buck Showalter is, uh, was, was being interviewed. And I, be- I believe also Bob Guerin, the, for- the, the former Met bench coach under Terry Collins, who has been with the Dodgers in recent in recent uh, recent years? You know he's been he's been to he's been to the World Series four times in the past seven years. So I mean, he's been on good coaching staffs. Um, you have you have Brad Ausmus, the former Angels and Tigers manager. I'll actually. I'm looking up Andy Martino of SNY. Uh, Joe Espada has already interviewed with the Mets, and it sounds like their first uh, round of interviews is pretty much almost over. So it looks like, you know, out of the candidates, you know, pretty much everybody has, you know, begun with at least a round of interviews. There's supposed to be a second round. So I would imagine this is wrapped up by next week. And, you know, one thing of note that this is this was a Zoom call that was mainly with um, Mets general manager Billy Epler. I'm sure Sandy Alderson was present as well in there. But so out of all that, I mean, here here's my thoughts on it. With all due respect to Matt Quattraro, uh, Joe Espada, they're probably terrific baseball men. They really, are, they probably are. But I don't need somebody learning on the job. I mean, if you look at the situation that the Mets are in, Steve Cohen is spending a ton of money because he believes that this team, with the right pieces, could be a World Series contender. And Steve Cohen is not looking to rebuild. He's looking to build a yearly winner. And there has been a specific... Uh, there's been a specific plan towards the Mets offseason because they're signing guys that don't have the qualifying offer attached to them because right now the Mets farm system is very thin. The Mets need to get as many draft picks as possible. 
You're already getting an extra draft pick because Noah Syndergaard declined the qualifying offer and signed that one-year deal with the Angels. Um, Michael Conforto is all but gone. I mean, unless uh, unless his market materialize, does not materialize at all, and he would sign sign here on a one-year deal. But I would put it as... 95% chance Michael Conforto is out the door. 5% chance one year, you know, one year short, you know, fifty maybe $15 million deal. So they're going to get a, they're going to get another uh, pick for losing Michael Conforto. And remember, the Mets are getting an extra pick because of Kumar Rocker not signing this past year, you know, the first round pick. From the 2021 draft. So you're looking at, I believe, picks 11 and 14 in the first round. Uh, the compensation for Syndergaard and Conforto, I believe, are going to be with you know, somewhere in the second, third round. So, I mean, there's a lot of early work that the Mets can do in their scouting department to develop the farm. I mean, we've heard about Francisco Alvarez, Mark Vientos, Brett Beatty. You know, we've heard about some guys, but the, and they're moving towards the top of the farm system. But the lower farm system is is very thin, and you know Brody Van Rag- Brody Van Wagenen when he was here for two years was very reckless with the farm system, trading Justin Dunn and Jared Kalenic, and you know it really thinned out what was starting to become a better farm system because uh, you know the one thing we've seen is that uh, you know Sandy Olson did a pretty good job with the farm system. I mean, you look at some guys that. Even maybe Omar Minaya still had a still had a hand in, but you look at Pete Alonzo and the Jeff McNeils and the Dominic Smiths, you know these these guys all coming up through the farm system, and it's just showing that yeah the Mets can build a decent farm system, but it's been so thin over the last couple of years. Steve Cohen is making a two a two aimed approach, twofold approach with. Spending to win now, but not giving up the draft picks so that you could build to win in the future. And that's really how you're going to become a consistent winner. You spend now, and then when you would like to shed some luxury tax to not have to pay the tax threshold, you have the farm system that can build you into a winner, but then you'll have the money to pay them, and... That's how you become. That's how you become the Dodgers, and you look at what they've done since Mark Walter and his ownership group took over the LA Dodgers. They had, I think it was like an eighty-six and seventy-six season in which they didn't really make the playoffs, but they were. You could see what they were building towards uh, in that first year, and then they won eight straight divisions and made a playoff. Made the playoffs as a wild card with a hundred and six wins for the ninth straight year, and. They are consistently good every single year. And yes, they just lost Corey Seager. They just lost Max Scherzer. But Max Scherzer was a midseason trade. But they just lost Corey Seager. But they brought in Trey Turner. So, I mean, and you look at the guys. They still believe in Gavin Lux. And despite trading uh, Josiah Gray and Kyber Ruiz, they still are very, very strong in the farm system. And... That's what the Mets are trying to build. and But going back to the managerial search, this is why I believe that it is Buckshaw Walter or bust. Now, I'll lighten up a little bit on that because with apparently Bob Guerin's name being thrown in the mix, I think Bob Guerin actually is a terrific baseball guy as well, and that's a hire that I would not be mad at at all. But any of the other names, I'm not really the biggest Brad Ausmus guy. I don't think he did that great of a job when he was in Detroit. He did lead them to the playoffs his first year, but they got worse every year since. There was some turmoil in the organization with the Angels when he was there that one year. So, And the ownership went above Billy Epler to fire Ausmus, and they brought in Joe Madden. So I'm not the biggest... Brad Ausmus guy. I like Joe Espada a lot, but you know, and, and as much experience as he has as a bench coach, I don't need a first-time manager. I need a veteran manager. Bob Guerin's done the job before. 
Buck Showalter's done the job before. And Buck Showalter's that program builder. You know, with the exception of Texas, he, he gets these teams to the playoffs. I mean, you win 90-plus you, you games and you have four straight winning seasons as the Baltimore Orioles manager. I think you're a good manager. I really do. Because Baltimore doesn't have the financial wherewithal to spend like the Mets. You know, they're not New York City. They're, they're a mid-market team. And, you know, he took over an expansion Arizona Diamondbacks team in, in year two in 1999. And, I'm sorry, you know, he took over in 98. He, he was in the playoffs in 99-2000. And, unfortunately, got fired at the wrong time. Look at the Yankees during the Gene Stick Michael era when George Steinbrenner was suspended. I mean... He built them up. He got them to the ALCS in 1995, and I believe, and and I firmly believe that had you know if George Steinbrenner wasn't reinstated and wasn't back to, and, and wasn't the owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Buck Showalter sticks around to win the World Series with uh, the New York Yankees because George Steinbrenner got impatient, hired Joe Torre, and Joe Torre ends up winning. Um, four World Series in five years. So, you know, I just look at it as Buck Showalter is the is definitely the number one priority, and you know Bob Guerin would not be a bad number two. Uh, that's how I look at it. And the other guys, I'm just really not interested in. So, I'll I'll take Buck Showalter, please. So that's gonna do it for. This edition of Baseball Banter will be back again next. We'll record every Wednesday uh, with a new episode. We'll, we'll figure out some things with during the um, lockout. Maybe do some baseball history. Do some – maybe get some, get some people on to do some trivia. We'll, we'll come up with a whole, whole set of things that we can kind of entertain ourselves during the lockout. But – you know, and if any news, you know, we'll break down the Mets managerial hire probably next Wednesday because I do believe that they'd like to wrap this up quick. So I could see by the middle of next week we might have an answer on who the Met manager is. So, and I also before before I sign off, I want to thank uh, Tom Bryce. Tom is the station manager of Sportswire Radio. You know, and he is now airing my baseball banter episode. So I want to give a huge shout out to the Reverend Tom Bryce. Uh, he does a terrific job. You know, I, I enjoy coming on every Friday night to talk, you know, talk sports with him and a bunch of the other guys and, you know, have a good sports chat for three hours every Friday night. So I just want to give a shout out to him. You know, this is also on Sokoa Media. You can also find this on Apple Podcasts. You can find you can find this play, this all over the place. So, with that, we'll talk, we'll uh, talk to you again next Wednesday. Have a good night.